0: Let's turn to uh, the Book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Last Sunday evening, uh, Sinkler was introduced as me, and I think he felt the nightmare of uh, being introduced as me and morphing into me. I feel that I'm now morphing into Sinkler because I had intended to do uh, Romans chapter 8 in about four sermons, and we're going to end up with about ten. Um, And so today, I thought, we're just going to stick with one verse. Because for many people, it's just one of the greatest and one of their favorite verses in the Bible. And that's Romans 8, verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, Google. Let's talk about Google just for a minute. Google has launched a voice assistance in the United States. I don't think you can get it in the U.S. yet. Where you, you know how you can you can talk to Google at some point. For those of you who who are not used to talking to inanimate objects, you can now do this. And they, but Google uh, in their um, machine, you can say to Google, "Hey Google, tell me something good," and it will only give you good news. And the press release says that Google will give a brief news summary about people who are solving problems for our communities and our world. This will obviously miss out things like Google avoiding tax or Google's agreement with the Chinese government to censor people. Um, But uh, it sounds good. We only get good news. But I suspect Google will not tell you the ultimate good news which we, we have here. Um, in fact, it's very interesting. Google, Siri, and, and all these ones. Try asking them, tell me about God and see what happens. Nothing. Nothing. It's interesting. I, I find that fascinating. Good news. Now, we, we always say that the gospel is good news. And we say it in such a cliched way, I think. And we, and we sometimes don't feel it. And sometimes it's too familiar for us. But when you've got really good news, and, and you've got really good news to tell people... Do you know what that feels like, so uh, I remember when Andy Murray won Wimbledon, and uh, it was he won it just in time for the evening service, which was very helpful uh, and I came in here and i couldn 't help but tell people and there was a woman who was really mad with me she didn 't listen to the rest of the service because she 'd videoed it uh, and and uh, you know spoiler alert. Uh, but I, I mean, it was just, it was, that was good news. But there's even better news. Imagine uh, you get engaged. You know, she said yes, or he said yes. That's good news. You don't mind putting that one on Facebook. Or you got a new job. Or, you know, numerous things that, you, you, that excitement of being able to communicate, you'll never guess what happened. You'll never guess what occurred and I think that what we have here is that times a thousand it really is quite astonishing Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says of this verse and this this area basically from verse 28 to verse 30 and the whole of Romans 8 says there is no higher doctrine than this I want to say also about this good news we are not talking if if you are just a visitor here and you're not used to coming to church we're not talking about mere religion Sometimes I go to religious services and they do my head in and I just I want to stand up and I want to yell no no that's not it and I want to walk out occasionally I have done so. I was at a service this week a Christian service where three highly intelligent people gave us the good news that you live in a wonderful place this is a wonderful university now go out and be wonderful to everybody and that was it. It was banal It was pathetic in so many ways. It had all the religious stuff surrounding it. But in the whole of that service, there was not one mention of Jesus. And there was not one reading of Scripture. That's often where we get to in the church. But this is really, really good news. Now, I will confess that I have been greatly helped in this by a man called Martin Lloyd-Jones, whose sermons you can now actually get online Um, i bet you he never foresaw that Uh, when i was a young man i became a christian about 16 and i worked in an oil rig yard for a wee while uh just for a summer job and i got loads of money i'd never had so much money and i got paid in cash so the first time i got paid i put this this wallet my wallet into my pocket and i went straight to the small christian bookshop in taine and i went Lloyd-Jones on Romans, Lloyd-Jones on Ephesians, 12 volumes. I'll have the lot, please. The bookshop thought they'd hit the lottery. Well, they had, kind of. And I just handed over my pay packet. Took the lot. One of the best investments I ever made in my life. Just, it was, for me, it was just absolutely fabulous. And on this, uh, these three verses, 28 to 30, he has over 250 pages. So, uh, you'll be a while. Um, But I just learned so much. And I want to just hope to share some of that with you and share what we've got here because one of the things that's really important you go back to verse 22 Paul says we know there are things we know we know the whole creation has been growing groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time but then he goes on to say we don't know how to pray we don't know what to pray for He's saying we know and we don't know. And that's the Christian life. The Christian life is not one of absolute knowledge. The Christian life is one of we know some things and there are other things that we do not know. We do know, according to this, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. It's one of the paradoxical things about the Christian life, says Lloyd-Jones, that we can be certain about the ultimate even when we are most uncertain about the immediate see that's the reverse for the world the world says i'm certain about this i'm certain about this i'm certain about this but i'm not certain about the future the christian says i'm certain about the future i'm certain about that god works but i'm not certain about the immediate there's so many things i do not know we can be confused we don't know what to pray but this one thing we do know all things work together for our good then let me just say let's unpack that a little bit but let me just say what it's not And you need to hear this very, very carefully. This is not Hollywood. The Bible was not written by Hollywood. Hollywood would say everything works out in the end. Chill, everything's going to be great. The good guys are always going to win. The bad guys are going to lose. No, everything does not work out in the end. Nor is it Louis Armstrong. I see trees of green and skies of blue and i think to myself what a wonderful world that the world is wonderful the world is not a perfect place and everything is not going to be all right all is not right with the world in fact the christian message is all is wrong with the world so this is not wishful thinking it's not everything's going to be okay in the end and it's not all is right with the world and for those of us who are christians i want to say this as well We far too often reduce the Christian life to our limited understanding. We think we've got it sussed. We think we're in control. We think things are fine. We pay lip service to the depravity of the world and our own hearts. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. Yeah, the world's in a bad place. I know that. But then it hits us, and it really hits us. You sit with a couple, and they tell you just some horrible stuff. And you think, how can human beings be like that? You discover that that person you trusted is a person who has behaving in an abominable way and betrayed not only you, but Christ and many other people. And you think, how can that be? And it shatters you. And it almost destroys your faith. And it shouldn't, because your faith is meant to be based on the Word of God. And the Word of God tells you what human beings are like. So Paul is not saying, look the world's great, and everything's going to work out fine in the end. He's not saying don't worry about a thing. Every little thing is going to be all right. Bob Marley got that one wrong as well. Those of you who get my subtle allusions to quality rock music, good for you. The rest of you just catch up. Um, (laughs) But you know, every little thing is going to be all right. No, it's not. Don't worry about a thing. Every little thing is going to be all right. That's not what this is teaching. What it's teaching it goes much 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 deeper and it is it is the mind of god this is about the spirit this whole chapter is about the holy spirit it's not a philosophy debate this is entering right in to the holy of holies and what really counts for us is that we don't understand and we don't know but we are going into the presence of god and he's telling us something and we need to hear this so let me put it in this way. First of all, God works. This doesn't, and I think for once the, the King James Version, it's not the best translation. It's not all things work out. It's that God works all things. It's important to realise that not that everything works together for good, but that God works all things together for good. And that's important. God is at work. It's important for you in so many different ways it's important for you when things go well and it's important for you when things are going badly that you need to know that it's God who is at work to will and to do as he pleases that it's not the devil who has control that you don't have control and the world doesn't have control but God is working even through the bad things now it's not saying that he does the bad things but just that God works all things for the good of those who love him and you'll notice it's for the good And then you have to ask, what is good? Because we we, we take that, we, we think there are certain things that are good. I get my degree, that's good. I get married, that's good. My children are healthy, that's good. I am healthy, that's good. I am wealthy, that's good. But what is good? How do we define what good is? What is the ultimate good? God works for our good, not for our comfort. And we know through the scriptures, Psalm 91, we're told that he shall charge his angels concerning you. We are told that if we belong to Christ, we are the apple of his eye. We are told by Jesus, he tells his disciples, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Because God takes care of his children. So we're told that it's God who works. We're told that it's for the good. And we're told that it's in all things. Not just what we perceive to be good, but also bad. So you get many examples in Scripture. Um, There is, of course, Joseph, who says to his brothers, you meant it for bad, but God meant it for good. And the word that's used here for working everything together is synergy. There's a synergy. Now, Lloyd-Jones uses, to me, uh, an illustration that I think is wonderful. The watch. If you've got an old-fashioned watch and you open it up, and maybe it's even one of those really, really fancy switch watches that, you know, to open it up, you're destroying a thousand pounds. But anyway, you open up your watch and you look at the back and what have you got? It doesn't make sense, at least not to me, because you've got a clock going in a clockwise direction and then you've got another going in an anti-clockwise direction. Well, you think the guy who made this must be mad you've got one going one way and you've got the other going the other way and yet it keeps perfect time. He knew what he was doing although they seem to be going against one another and what paul is teaching here is the good and the bad they seem to be going against one another but god is keeping perfect time god is working what is good i have had so much pleasure reading an old greek preacher called golden mouth i think that's a great name you can nickname anyone that if you want golden mouth chrysostom And just this week, just in the providence of God, I've been reading a series of sermons by him in which he's dealing with very difficult circumstances in Antioch in Syria where um, the city was being ransacked and so on. And in one of those sermons, he says this, this is the paradox that not only the sadness of the world, but also its joy contains extreme loss. Okay? You understand that? The sadness of the world, but the joy... Also contains extreme loss. You think of the most joyful occasions; they also bring extreme loss. You get a lot of money, you're going to lose it. You get married, someone's going to die. You know what I mean? There's even the most joyful occasions contain extreme loss. But says Chrysostom, in the case of spiritual things, it is exactly the reverse. Not the joy only, but the sadness too contains a rich treasure of good things. The sadness that we experience as Christian believers contains a rich treasure of good things. So I want to kind of expand this a little bit and just say how does that work. When bad things happen, we will quite often complain, how could this happen to me? And actually, God does answer that. So for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about um, having a thorn in the flesh. And he said, why, why, did, why did I get this? I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it from me. And it, he says, so that I wouldn't be exalted above measure. It was to keep him humble. Trouble makes us see our need for forgiveness, makes us see our need for strength, and makes us see our need for help. This is where we grow in depth. When you first become a Christian, you're a wee baby. You're a baby Christian. And I know that that we often don't like that analogy. We like to teach people almost you become a Christian and you're an instant adult super saint. You're not. You're a baby Christian. And I used to think about that, um, you know, when I was a young teenager. I thought, this, this is me. You know, I can, I can take on the world. And I did try to take on the world and didn't get past the front door. But you, you learn as you go on. You've been 40 years in the faith and you think, do you know this? I'm hardly out of nappies spiritually you grow you grow but this is how you grow you want to go deeper you'll go through trouble knowing in theory is one thing knowing in practice is another and our greatest need is to know god better again lloyd john says it's very difficult to detach yourself from this world when you are well and healthy and strong but when you're lying on a sick bed it's not quite so difficult and that's true that really is true. Those of us who experienced being extremely ill, being weak, not being able to do anything, not being able to lift your legs, not being able to lift your hands, wondering if you're going to make it through the night, you don't need to be told you're weak and frail. You know that you are weak and frail. When you're full of verve, full of energy, full of life, When everything's going well, I suspect you don't meditate on the glory that is to come because you're quite satisfied with the glory that you have just now. And so one of the reasons that these things happen, that bad things happen to us, is to humble us and to cause us to seek the greater things and not to be so wrapped up in the things of this world. But what about falling into sin? What about backsliding as a Christian? Is that included in the all things? Yes, it is. It is. God even turns our backsliding to work it for good. What possible good can come from that? And again, for those of you who are Christians who have let the Lord down and let him down in a way that only you know and let him down in a way that squashes you and crushes you, you, you need to hear this. How can that possibly be for good? I'll tell you why it's for good. Because it makes you realize what weak creatures we are it's not an enticement to sin. It's not saying, let's go and sin so that we can learn how weak we are. What it is, is God teaching us, let him who thinks he stand bewares in case he falls. And that's why the prodigal son. Do you know what happened with the prodigal son when he came home? The prodigal son knew more about sonship, the father's love and grace, than he knew before. And I suspect he knew more than the elder son. Now, that's not saying we should all be prodigal sons and we should all sin and so on, but it's just simply saying this, that even when you have gone wrong, God can turn that and turn it into something that is good. Even our defects can be turned to our good. So, God works all things for the good of those who love him. It is, though, for those who love him, isn't it? It's interesting that Paul uses that phrase here because I think there's only two other times where he, he, he doesn't talk. When he puts love and believers and God together, he always talks about God loving us. But here, and in 1 Corinthians, I think in one place, but also in Ephesians six twenty four, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus with an undying love. Here, he's speaking about those who love God. It is to the ones loving God that all things work together for good. Those of you who think, well, this is teaching the world's a great place and it's going to be okay. No, you're not a Christian. This is not true for you. You're not a Christian. You do not have this assurance. You cannot have this assurance. You cannot know that all things are going to work together for good. In fact, ultimately, they are going to turn out bad, which is great that you're here so you can hear about Christ so that you can come to know Christ. But loving God to those who love God. What does that mean? How do we know we love God? It's not an easy question. Verse 7 talks about the carnal mind or the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It's not just belief in God. You can be a theist without being a Christian. That's why I don't think it's really ever good in terms of outreach and evangelism to try and convince people to be theists. Most people are theists. There aren't many real atheists in the world. But being a theist, being someone who believes in God, is not enough. That belief has to be a love. And here's the fascinating thing about love. Love is all-inclusive. You cannot love with part of your being. You can't say I'm gonna love God with my hands but I'm not gonna love him with my lips or I'm gonna love him with my with my heart but I'm not gonna love him with my mind loving means giving all loving God by definition is not just a feeling John fourteen twenty one whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them there is no such thing as theoretical love. You can't go, well, in theory, I love God. No, no. You don't get that. You love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And let me tell you, I find those some of the most difficult verses in the whole Bible because I know how easy it is to say, yeah, I love you. It's as easy as a man saying to his wife, ah, of course you know that I love you. Really? Prove it. Love is, is, is not as simple And as easy as people say what is love for god there's a desire to please god there's a desire to live for his glory there's a desire to keep his commandments and to be like him and i think particularly in this context i think what paul has in mind is how we react in adversity shows whether we love god or not so something bad happens to us and we say i'm out of here god doesn't love me obviously so i don't love him Or I'm bitter and angry and I blame and I hate God. Job 2 verse 9. After he'd lost everything, his wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And you know this? I think 99 out of 100 of us probably would have. And we wouldn't have needed our wives to tell us to do that. But Job replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. This is love for God. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That's love. How do you know you love God? I don't think you do know until it's tried and tested. You don't know. I'll tell you how you know you love your your partner, your wife, or your husband. Or you love your children or whatever. It's when they're sick. It's when there's trouble. I... Heard of a, a minister recently. In fact, I, I listened to his testimony, and it was really quite extraordinary what he did. Except it wasn't. He gave up virtually everything to sit with his very sick wife for about twenty years. And he was asked, "Why? You know, why did you do that?" He said, "Well, I love her, and that's it. That's it." Our actions, our reaction to adversity shows whether we love God or not for those who are called according to his purpose now again what does that mean the call there's a general call in the past Acts seventeen thirty, God overlooked such ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent everyone here is called to repent but there's what the theologians call an effectual call Many are invited, says Jesus, but few are chosen. You know what the effectual call is? It's when you hear the call and the Spirit so works in your life and in your heart that you respond. You heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. You hear the Spirit speaking and God works within you. You are born anew. you. You see the kingdom of God and you enter in to that kingdom. Well, how do you know whether you've been called? Let me ask you some basic questions. And this, for me, was always the good thing about Lloyd-Jones. He was a doctor, so he was very used to analysis and analyzing people medically. And he did it spiritually. And these are the kind of questions. Are you interested in the things of God? Well, why? Why are you interested in the things of God? Is it just academic? Why are you here? You might not yet be a Christian, but I'll tell you this. The fact that you're here in a day and age when so many people will tell you to come to a church like this is insane. There's something going on. In your life do you hear the voice of Jesus do you get it if you're a Christian are you amazed at what you are and what you do amazed maybe even more at what has been done to you do you know that God has interfered in your life it's one of the most wonderful testimonies I ever hear from people it's when they come and they say David I don't know what's happening to me I'm actually loving hearing God's Word you know, and I actually find this a great testimony when someone says, you know, I used to find your sermons so boring, and, I, and you know, that's fine, and then God's Spirit works in their life, and they say, you know, that boring stuff was really exciting now. It's wonderful. It's great. I understand. That's God working. Why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Is it because of all the intellectual arguments that have been piled upon you? No, it's not. It's because God has worked in your lives. Are you convicted of your sin? Sometimes to the extent that you despair. If you are convicted of your sin in that way, it is not an evidence that you are not a Christian. It's an evidence that you are. That God is working. Why would an unbeliever be miserable about their own sin? They would feel remorseful, but why would they feel miserable? It's only God, the Holy Spirit, who convicts of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. Do you have a desire to know the Lord better? I want to know Christ says Paul towards the end of his life I want to know him see I wonder if some of you here your thirst and your hunger and your love for Jesus has grown cold and that puts you in a difficult position because you then don't know if you were ever really a Christian at all the difference between a backslidden Christian and somebody who's never a Christian at all you can't really tell but the desire to know the Lord better. I'm a normal Christian, so sometimes in my life, I've wandered away from the Lord in my heart, at least, and that's as bad as, if not worse, than doing things externally that are wrong. But I'll tell you this, the times that have been the most blessed to me have always been when I just wanted to know Jesus, when I was just fed up of everything else and just wanted to know him oh love that will not let me go do you know that you happy in sin you cannot be happy in sin as a christian are you are you amazed that you have a part in god's great purpose because that's what he's talking about here those who are called according to his purpose what's the purpose of god I think once you know the purpose of God, it's inevitable and it's logical that you'll see that all things work together for the good of those who love God. What's God's purpose? God has decreed a way of salvation in a sinful world to save the world. God so loved the world. And God has sent His Son and God is going to save for Himself a number that no one can count. And God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And God is going to be glorified in the salvation of sinners. God has purposed it and it will happen. The gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. And God's purpose is not an afterthought. It's not God saying, oh, that didn't work. I'll try this one. They didn't work. I'll go for them. God's purpose will always be fulfilled. And if you know that, you know then that when you are faced with death and tragedy and despair and sin and wickedness and evil, you still say, but yeah, God's going to work all things for good because his purpose will be fulfilled. That is the absolute ground of assurance. It was God's set purpose and foreknowledge that handed over Jesus. It was God's purpose that allowed Job to be tested. It was God's purpose that let Joseph be beaten up and taken into slavery and be falsely accused of, uh, you know, sexual immorality. allowed Potiphar and others to be wearing Me Too badges as well. It was God's purpose to let all that happen. Now, we need to be careful. This does not mean that everything that happens to us, God has done. There's a difference between what God does and what he permits. When we say, why has God done this to me? He hasn't. He has permitted it to happen, which is a different thing. Just take an extreme example. The 20 Coptic Christians in Egypt who were beheaded on the beach. Did God behead them? No, he didn't. Did he prevent it from happening? No, he didn't. And there is a big difference in that God allows things to happen sometimes he allows them to happen that we may learn to train people we train our children students are trained if if you are a a student here and you are kind of forgive me for using this word um, I've now come to the conclusion that it's my generation who are the snowflakes not you but if you are not in a snowflake university where oh we can't upset the poor students you will love a teacher who tells you where you go wrong and you'll love a teacher who lets you make mistakes why because that's how you learn and that's how God teaches us Amos 3 2 it's an amazing verse you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth therefore says God I will punish you for all your sins he loves us those whom he loves he disciplines Psalm 119 67 before I was afflicted (coughs) I went astray but now I obey your word. Sometimes God permits these things to rebuke us and to correct us and to humble us. Sometimes God can withhold blessings from us because he turns his face away from us. It's sometimes with children, it's a way of convicting them and of humbling them. The one thing I did not want to hear from my mother or from my father was not, you're in trouble now, you're getting the belt, which occasionally did happen. What I didn't want to hear ever was, you've really let us down. You've really disappointed me. I'm sorry. I don't want to talk to you just now. That's, wow. That's far worse than getting the bell, I can tell you. Well, sometimes God turns his face away from us. Sometimes the devil comes and accuses us and says, How can you say you're a child of God? How can you say God is a God of love? The devil wants us to doubt and to give up and to despair and to be overwhelmed and to grumble and to complain. And so in our hearts we cry out, where is the blessedness? I knew when first I saw the Lord. Now when that happens, don't ever counsel somebody by saying, pull yourself together, Jesus loves you. Don't be so shallow. That's not how it works. This is real spiritual counseling that is going on here. Romans 8 is the ultimate, I think, in the counselor's manual. It's what the Holy Spirit, the counselor, comes to us and shows us. And he tells us something that I think is amazing. Sometimes the child of light walks in the darkness because they are a child of light. Sometimes you're in the darkness not because God hates you, but because God loves you. And he takes you through it. Just an example, uh, just a general one. The covenanters in Scotland. There's a great saying that comes from them. At the, if you don't know the church history, I haven't time to go into it. But basically... Faithful Christian believers were being persecuted by the state. And do you know what they said? I mean, mean, really persecuted. You can go um, to the Bass Rock in the Firth of Forth, and you can see there a boot. It's an iron boot, and it has nails inside. And they put the boot on your foot, and they crushed your leg because you were a Christian, because you wouldn't bow to them. Do you know what these covenanters said? They said, testing times healing times and growing times now I'm going to give you one example of that and then we're going to sing and then I'm going to uh, apply this Um, maybe I can ask the band to come up and be ready because we're going to sing a song uh, it is well with my soul and I just want to tell you about that song as the band come up Um, some of you will know the story others won't a man called Horatio Spafford was a lawyer and a businessman in Chicago He had a wife called Anna he had five children in 1871 one of them died with pneumonia most of their business was lost in the great Chicago fire <coughs> but they recovered in November 1873 Anna and their four daughters went on an ocean liner to France the ship sank after being hit by a Scottish fishing boat actually <coughs> and four of the daughters drowned all four children drowned Anna was picked up and she wired a message which began, saved alone, what shall I do? Spafford later framed the telegram and placed it in his office. A guy called Pastor Weiss, who also survived, recalled Anna saying, God gave me four daughters. Now they've been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. Horatio left to join his wife. Of course, she couldn't fly in those days, so he just took the... The boat, and as he was sailing past the area where his children had drowned, the ca- ship's captain called him and said, "This is where your children drowned." And according to one, uh, a later daughter, he sat down and he wrote the hymn that we're about to sing, which I think is extraordinary. Incidentally, they had three more children, one of whom also died of pneumonia, and they they, they then moved to Jerusalem. But that's where this song comes from, out of the deepest suffering. So we're going to sing it and please do think about the words as we sing it and then I just want to say something before we conclude when peace like a river attendeth my way let's stand and sing men please be seated so confidence in the sovereignty of God in the midst of trouble is an absolute fundamental of the Christian faith it's great to assent to the great historical facts of the gospel Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus is miracles. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus shall return. But you apply those when you're faced with the reality of suffering. Here's the thing for us, those of us who are Christians. You will lose many battles and you're still going to win the war. You're always going to win the war. You will lose many battles. Again, just to cite Lloyd Jones, he gives in a medic- medical analogy, and he was talking about doctors, and he says, "Good doctors don't get excited about particular symptoms. If you know that the patient is getting better, you will lose many battles. Don't be tied down with the particulars. Look at the whole. Look at the big picture." This week, there are things happened to me that I go, "Oh no! Oh no! Oh no!" Look at the big picture. Look at the big picture. Again, going back to Chrysostom, I just, I love this, this so much. The man who fears God as he ought and trusts in him gathers from the very root of pleasure and has possession of the whole mountain of cheerfulness. There you go. As a Christian, you've got the whole mountain of cheerfulness. And this is the one that got me. And as a spark falling upon a wide ocean quickly disappears, so whatever events happen to the man who fears God, these falling as it were upon an immense ocean of joy are quenched and destroyed. Your sorrows are real, but they're the spark falling into an immense ocean of joy. If you desire joy, says Chrysostom, don't seek after riches. I'll say this to all of us, but those of you who are students here especially. Don't seek after riches, even though, according to the Courier, Dundee students earn the highest graduate salaries of every university in Scotland. Just to let you know, looking forward to your ties. But don't seek... (laughs) Don't, don't seek after riches, says Chrysostom. This is the fourth century, by the way. Human beings are always the same. Don't seek after riches, nor bodily health, nor glory, nor power, nor luxury, nor sumptuous tables, nor silk clothes, nor costly lands, nor conspicuous and splendid houses, nor iPhones or fancy cars, I made up that last bit, Um, (laughs) (laughs) nor anything else of that kind. But pursue the spiritual wisdom that comes from God, take hold of virtue, and then none of the things that are present or which are expected, none of the troubles that are present or which are expected will be able to sadden you. Just take that phrase, they're a spark falling upon an immense ocean of joy. I don't think that Horatio Stafford, when he wrote that song, was being heartless cruel i don't think he was being stoical i don't think he was being hard i think the very very opposite i think his heart broke when he sailed past where his daughters had drowned but he saw christ and that just shows you how deep and immense is the love of christ that it can carry you through that sorrow and that's what you have as a christian we know in all things god works For the good of those who love him. It is not essential to your salvation. Says Octavius Winslow. Because we're going to come and look on the predestination bit later on. It is not essential to your salvation that you believe in election. But it is essential to your salvation. That you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. When you believe in Jesus. You're a Christian. You are walking out of this building with an absolute guarantee. That everything God will work for your good. You reject Christ and you walk out of this building. You have no insurance for anything. You have no hope for anything. You have nothing that will survive. Nothing that will ultimately give you joy and happiness. But if you have Christ, you can lose nothing that will take away that ultimate Joy and again, I'm not please This is not. I'm not saying this lightly. I'm not saying Christians are not people who suffer. We, we we suffer as much, if not more, than anyone else. But I'm saying the context and the background is very, very different, and we have a much stronger hope. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. He's calling you, and He's calling me, and we need to respond. And those of us who are believers, you know what we need to do, actually. It's not just non-believers who need to repent. We need to repent. Why? Because we're so godless and ungrateful. We have to be gouted into doing anything for Jesus. Whereas if we knew who he was and what he's done, we would be falling on our knees and saying, Lord, what can we do? What can we do? You have done everything for us. Well, may God grant that we would see and understand this. Let's pray. Lord, it's... Easy to believe that everything works for good when everything's going well in our eyes. And it's almost impossible to believe when everything is going wrong. When our minds are disturbed, our bodies are broken, our relationships destroyed. When our country's in a mess and our church is confused. How can we believe? And yet, we believe because it's your word and you do not lie. We believe because your spirit works for the good. We believe because Jesus died so that with him we would receive all things. And we believe because we have no one else to go to. We cannot trust ourselves, other people, our circumstances. We are weak and frail in every way, but you are strong and mighty. And in the midst of a twisted and sick world, You will keep your people. You will build your kingdom. And you will bring glory to your name. And we will rejoice and exalt in that. We may lose battles, but the war is won. We bless you for that. In your name, amen. We're going to finish by singing a song which tells us why it is the case as well. It's because of God's grace.